IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Rather than looking at multiple programs to help your child in different subjects, one subscription gets you everything with IXL Learning, and all the kids in your home work off once from pre-K to 12th grade. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com IXLAV. Visit IXL.com IXLAV to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's beat reporter Craig Hoffman. It's the Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. I am Craig Hoffman. He is Logan Paulson. It is 49ers week, Logan. And uh, instead of just previewing the game and going like, hey, uh, this is how Jacoby Brissett and the Commander's offense matches up against the vaunted 49ers defense, which we will do some of, uh, I think it'd be a better use of our time today to kind of look at the way the 49ers have been built as one of the model organizations in the NFL. Obviously, they're coming off a loss uh, to one of the other model organizations in the NFL and the Baltimore Ravens. But take a look at how they've built it up as a potential model for the commanders as they will embark on their rebuild here in a couple of weeks. Um, And I think it's extra great that we get to do this, Logan, because at the start of the 49ers rebuild, there was a veteran tight end brought into the fold (laughs) by a head coach who had just been hired named Kyle Shanahan, um, to, to help institute some things and, and uh, be a set of eyes and, and you know, a productive player in, in some aspects. Uh, and and that, that guy's name was Logan Paulson. So yeah. you, you were there at the start of this thing. Yeah, I was there at the start of the thing. And it was really interesting to be there for it, you know, because I think you, like, you know, obviously I got a lot of respect for Kyle, but like the team was, and the roster was kind of in a weird spot. And it took a lot of like cleaning house to kind of get things right. And you bring guys in, um, like I was one of them and I expected to have a certain role. And then as camp goes on, 
you realize that certain guys like George Kittle emerges and uh, Brent Selleck does a great job. And, you know, but Vance McDonald, who was their second round pick from like three years prior, gets traded. And so there was this really interesting kind of shuffling of cards and feeling stuff out and saying this works, this doesn't. And I think also kind of weeding into the culture a little bit and saying like, this is the right cultural fit or this is how we communicate with these guys and also seeing Kyle establish himself as a head coach, you know, cause I'd only <clears throat> prior to that only known him as a coordinator. He'd only been a coordinator and, you know, he was a guy that um, is, is like, he's a, he's a very smart football guy, but you know, didn't relate to people very well. So watching him kind of cultivate that skill set, and then getting kind of to see, you know, like Adam Peters, like as a young kind of executive in, in that room, who's kind of uh, I, I don't know his official title, but he's, part of their he's, scouting. He's the assistant GM now. Right. Um, so, I don't know what he was at the time. Yeah, but I'm saying like seeing those guys kind of, you know, mm -hmm. Mike McDaniels and all, I, and just everybody kind of starting this this process and to see where it's gotten to it is pretty dramatic, I think. So um, it is an interesting roadmap and it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows, especially in those first couple of years for him, but it did turn. And I think, you know, why did it turn? I think you get people in there that kind of share the same vision get more talent in the roster, get people that fit your offensive identity. And I think that's one of the advantages, you know, in terms of team structures of having your head coach be your offensive coordinator, because you can say, and also having such a good relationship with the GM. I think that's something that people sleep on. I think the, the GM head coach structure is the way to go. But having that relationship where he can go to John and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And then John respects Kyle enough to like implement those decisions and kind of communicate that to his staff. And I think that that's something like just that line of communication, the ability of the owner in that situation, because I know this was a big deal for Kyle to kind of step back and let those dudes play in the sandbox and build what they wanted to build. That whole process was really fascinating. And to see the to see it blossom into what it has become, um, it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. But I, when you were in it face, you know, face to the grindstone type of thing, it was very unclear that that was the direction uh, it was going to go. So I think there's a lot of different facets to, to talk about here. Um, one, I think, is encouraging that we don't even have to discuss that much. Josh Harris is absolutely a hire smart people, let them play in the sandbox right. type of owner. So that's that's obviously very encouraging. Um, and I do want to get to the way their roster is built in a second, and that will uh, you know lend to some game preview as well with talking about Brock Purdy and, and how it's been able to work for them, taking Mr. Irrelevant into an MVP candidate, even if, again, that candidacy obviously did take a shot uh, Monday night against Baltimore. But... I think the place I would like to start in, in thinking about this uh, is with the coaching staff and how Kyle built that, because that is something that we have talked about here, where the past couple of years, the staff just has not been like there aren't a bunch of future head coaches on this staff and there haven't been. And in fact, there's only been one past head coach on this staff, too, in Jack Del Rio before he was dismissed earlier this year. And I think at times that has been very detrimental. Uh, and basically at all times, frankly, it's been very detrimental to the attempts at success here in Washington where you haven't had the best and, and there haven't been, um, you know, there, there hasn't necessarily been complementary skill sets where you look at San Francisco and what they've built. Kyle has built a staff that allows him to still be the offensive coordinator to the point that when Mike McDaniel left, they actually never replaced him. There is no official offensive coordinator on Kyle's staff. It's Kyle. Um, but he has Anthony Lynn. He has Steve Wilkes. Like he has former head uh, or Pat, past head coaches. Um, he had a guy in D'Amico Ryans before Steve Wilkes, who was a future head coach. Um, there, there's never been a fear of having talent uh, where you're going to feel threatened or for whatever other reasons people don't have talented folks beneath them. And there's always been an experience level 
that allows Kyle to to make sure all the the bases are covered uh, while still being the offensive coordinator. And obviously, you have much more detail on that, having lived that and having seen Kyle set up the first version of it. But what have you seen in terms of how they have built the staff, maybe in a little more detail, uh, you know, in any in any relevant point from comprehensive, uh, you know, or, or you know, cohesive thought processes to complementary skill sets to whatever else you think makes a good staff? Well, I think the thing that I've just always been blown away with Kyle, with Sean, you know, when you look at their staffs, they just get really talented people in the building. And then they they develop coaches. I, mean, I don't know how they do it. I think it's part of it, like I would assume, um, you know, I haven't talked to anybody specific about this, but like the standard of coaching and the standard of execution and the standard of game plan is so high that it just kind of infiltrates um you know, the rest of the staff, because like Kyle is notoriously hard on his staffs and offensive staffs. And I think it leads to this, these guys that, and, and again, it's, it's, it's not hard because you get guys that want to be pushed. They want to be coached. They want to get better. They want to kind of be the best. And there's times where you look at other staffs I've been a part of, I'm not going to name those staffs where that's not always been the case. You get guys kind of surviving each and every day doing enough to kind of scrape through. And I think identifying those people is, is super, super critical. And I think the other thing that's really important is like he trains coaches the way he wants to train them, you know, and, um, you know, Mike McDaniel was a big part of that when I was there kind of helping Kyle establish his, his vision to the staff was always super important. And that was something Kyle did. And now he's got Chris Forrester in that role, I would assume, um, who's the run game coordinator. And I would essentially assume is kind of an analogous for the offensive coordinator at this point. Um, yeah. But, you know, like you have guys you trust. And like you mentioned this, like when I first got there, um, John Embry, who had previously been a head coach in college, like basically handled all the scheduling for him. So Kyle could focus on what Kyle wanted to focus on. And, you know, John's a tremendous coach. And so I think that's the thing is like when you just look at the staffs and you talk to the guys from those staffs, they develop staff really well and they identify talent very well. And they and there's not this. And, I, you know, like I look at all the people that have left that building up in San Francisco and I would say, man, that would cripple most organizations because coaching is so important, but they just do such a good job of having someone kind of in the wings, someone that's learned from the guy above them that can step into that position. And then eventually that person becomes the next head coaching candidate. And it's just this really interesting cyclical thing that they've developed there. And I think it's really awesome. But again, it speaks to a standard and making sure you have the right guy, you know, the, the right coach and a guy that understands his weaknesses, understands his strengths and um and can and can fill out the staff appropriately and i think that's what you've seen in san francisco the other thing that i think is you un not unique because i would uh presume one of one um but is is critically important for kyle is his football acumen is so high and his vision yeah. of what he think works is so high that you're not going to wind up with a coach who thinks that you know, we should do this, this way and this, that way. And this, like, you don't, you don't get these mixes of philosophies because if you don't see the game the way Kyle, or you're not willing to see the game that Kyle, the way Kyle sees it, he's not going to hire you. So like, I had assumed that Anthony Lynn uh, coming in as a former head coach, as a former offensive coordinator, wasn't, you know, as locked in on every detail uh, in the same way that, or with the same vantage point that Kyle was but he's clearly willing to get on that page to become the assistant head coach and running back coach for Kyle Shanahan. Um, I think of also his ability to continually find the right defensive coaches. I mean, their defense has been fantastic ever since yeah. he's been there. And some of that is they had really good talent, right? Like they, they, they did the Washington thing and went like four or five years in a row where they had first rounders up front 
um, to the point that they also had to do the Washington thing and trade one of their key guys away. Um, they traded, uh, who's the guy who's now in Indianapolis? Oh my God. Uh, Not Eric. Is it Eric? Ar- yeah. DeForest Buckner. Eric Armstead's still there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, DeForest Buckner, you know, they had to trade away because they had too many guys and couldn't devote the resources to the position. Um, once everybody came up for contracts, but like whether it's D'Amico Ryan's or now Steve Wilkes, like they've had great defensive coordinators. And I would imagine that is because there's a cohesive way that like, if Kyle thinks about offense this way, the inverse is true where he thinks about defense in a certain way and what works. And he's hunting out people who have that philosophy and thus there's continuity as well. I mean, real quick, like there's a, there's a great book that I've read uh, on the other football on soccer Mm -hmm. that talks about how with in Europe, like the best clubs that have continuity are ones that employ like a director of sporting operations Mm. where like, this is our vision. And we might have, because in European soccer, like if you have success at, at, you know, a Dutch club, Mm. someone in Germany is going to hire you and you're not going to have that coach very long. So there's not a continuity that you have when you're at the top level, where if you have success, your coach isn't going to go anywhere like you have in the NFL. Right. So it's really important to have continuity in terms of style so that when you hire the next guy, you don't have a bunch of players playing uh, a style or that doesn't match because the coach had a different philosophy. So you have this director of like sporting operations that has a very clear vision and your player acquisition and your coach acquisition always fits the same mold. And it feels like Kyle has been able to do that as like the lead football guy in San Francisco, along with John Lynch and Adam Peters in their front office to say like, hey, this is how we're going to play offensively because I'm the guy but also defensively, and when we hire a new defensive coordinator, he's going to coach the way that we want, or we're going to find someone that coaches the way we want, so our personnel isn't mismatched, and that leads to long-term success. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I really think to keep it even more high level than that, I think you just, it's a competitive coaching environment. So, like, you're trying to, like, Kyle's always trying to poke holes in what the defense is doing, and when you're doing that, you kind of flesh out rules and you say, Oh, like, well, this is how we match three by one. And like, this is an issue for us. And we know that's an issue. And I think like that, that environment, again, like this high level football environment allows that to happen, you know? And I I think, you know, I was having a conversation with someone recently about Brandon Staley, you know, and like where that, Mm -hmm. where that, where that failing happened. And it was really interesting because like, they're like, he's a brilliant dude but he didn't know like where his holes were and he didn't really know how to like develop a staff necessarily because he'd hire guys. Right. And then he'd think, Oh, because I'm so smart, I can get them there. But I think one thing that Kyle does a good job of is he hires like people to fill in his blind spots. And you mentioned he hires guys that want to get on board with him. I don't necessarily totally agree with that. I think there is some truth to that, but I think he hires guys that challenge him, that challenge him, his not, not, not like in a mean way, but just kind of our, 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 are trying to find the next thing. And I think that's where yeah. you, and, and, and you can trust the staff. I think that's the other thing is you, they're young guys, but you can trust them. They're ready for more responsibility. And then the defensive thing I think is also really compelling too, because I do think it just going up in, in that kind of against that offense every day is going to lead to a better defensive product, but you got to make sure you get the right guy in that position. You know, you mentioned D'Amico, you mentioned Robert Sala. Like when right. I was there, Robert was, or Sala was the coach and Sala you know, like was very green at the time. I think he was a first year DC and, but he had the same energy that the offensive staff had. And then that matriculated down to the defense. And I do think that that's why when you see, like when you see the right guy in that coordinator position, it affects everything you're doing 
um, offensively and defensively. And I think they've just done a great job of, of a creating an environment that brings people up and also making sure you identify the correct people uh, to fill out those positions. Yeah, totally. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I like the way you put that that matches the energy, right? Like you yeah. need, you, you need p- people that are on the same page energy wise who, who have a certain baseline, like agreeance on the thing, but then maybe have some different opinions on certain yeah. things and can challenge you in a healthy way. Um, and are willing to, and that's another right. thing as well. That actually reminded me of a story um, from a book from a political staffer that I had read, and they were younger on the in like the president's staff at the time, and they were sitting on what they called backbenchers, because uh, like when you're in in a meeting in the White House, there's like the table that the primary people are at, and then there's a bench behind them with all the staff, and they walk out of the the meeting afterwards and this guy who had been younger and was a backbencher goes up to the uh the president and is like well i think blah 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 and the president looks at him and is like hey man that was the meeting like next time speak up basically right, like hey your right. your voice is welcome here right i don't care that you're a backbencher if you have a good idea speak up and that was like the environment that that president had created right and and that I that willingness, even if you're Robert Sala and you're green as a DC, to go to Kyle and challenge him, or to if you're the assistant, whatever, if you're one of the Kubiak twins uh, down on their staff, we were looking at their staff beforehand, right? We're like, are those two? Maybe they're right. actually twins, maybe they're brothers, but anyway, yeah. um, you know, if you're the assistant quality control coach, but you have uh, you see something like do you have the environment to say it? And it feels like that's what they've built there. And and you have that healthy, challenging nature that elevates everybody. And I think when you talk to people who are from that system, like it's, it's not just say whatever you want. It's like, you better be well researched and well read on that subject. Like it better work. And I think that's something that it's part of that culture you're talking about. It's like, yeah, speak up. But like, we're going to give you a hard time if it's not the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like if, know if it, know if, your stuff. If it's dumb and you just said some stuff because you, you just thought of it in the moment, like that's not the solution either. Like I remember, you know, like on the, uh, what was that, that thing that we listened to this off season, the uh, podcast, uh, the play callers, the play yeah. callers. Yeah. Which is great. You know, they talked about like the competitive drive to like get stuff in the game plan, but how, if it wasn't, if it didn't work versus if it worked versus cover two, but not versus cover six and it didn't work versus this run front, like Kyle would just throw it out. And so making sure you had answers and all of those different looks and prepping it. And again, that, I think that for, for our listeners, like that is so important because what that does is it teaches that person how to game plan effectively and what makes good offensive football. And that is so, so critical. Cause like he wants you to try, but if it's not, if, if the project's not good, like get it out of here, we're not doing that anymore. And I think that's where you see that you see what what makes that staff special why it works for kyle why it works for sean why it works for mike and so so important yeah for sure so that brings us to the player side of it right because these two things obviously uh, coexist um when you have clear ideas about the, the X's and O's, you have clear ideas of what you need to make it actually work on the field from a player department and specifically quarterback development. And that's been an interesting journey for Kyle in San Francisco uh, and one that Washington is about to embark on. So what, like, I, I think it's fascinating because people, 
like this wasn't a straight line. They look at Purdy and everyone wants to, yeah. you know, critically acclaim Kyle for turning Pur- Purdy into what he is right now. But like that was, they found this by accident. They yeah. drafted him because they liked him, but they traded up a ton of stuff for Trey Lance and took him with the number three pick. Clearly that was the guy they wanted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they've had more success with Garoppolo, more success, the most success with Purdy. So what is it about the way that they built it there um, QB and system development that that wound up being the right choice and not a guy like Trey Lance who has you know far more physical tools and ultimately they trade away for next to nothing to the Dallas Cowboys two and a half years or whatever it was after they draft him yeah I mean I think that's 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 a really good question and when you look at it I think I heard someone describe it like this like basically like 60 or 70 percent depending on who the quarterback is of the offensive production is like Kyle Shanahan and how he coaches it and how he kind of schemes stuff up and the extra 30% of the offensive production resides with the quarterback. And it's really hard to kind of get numbers to support that, you know, like that perspective. But like one of the most glaring ones is they are 32nd in the league in pass attempts, but they are second in your in, in receiving yards for the team. So like that is we're not throwing the ball a ton. We've deleveraged the quarterback tremendously. And that's, this is what we're talking about, right? Like Brock Purdy's playing excellent football, right? He's playing excellent football. He's doing the right stuff. He's playing at a high level. Like you watch him and you're like, man, that's a huge, that's a big time throw. That's a tight window throw. That's a great opportunity. But I think what it, what it is, is he doesn't have to do it all the time. And what that allows you to do is basically say like, I've schemed this play up. We were watching a play the other day where they're running like a counter action. They got a puller coming. They got a tight end coming back, a linebacker step up and you get Debo Samuels, who's probably a top 10 receiver in the NFL with nobody within 10 yards of him. And Brock Purdy has to make a nice throw kind of later in there. But like, it's not this high leverage, like, do I have to fit this in a tight window? Do I have to anticipate this at a high level? No. And I think when you give the quarterback kind of some layups, and that to me is a layup, giving him a layup, then when it's time to make the big time throw, which is four or five times a game, they're ready. They're not in this like high leverage situation. I think when you look at Brock Purdy last year, He was a system quarterback. He was elevated by the system. And they developed him enough over the last year where now he's in a position where he can make some of those high leverage plays and elevate the offense that extra 30%. Because I I think I've said this before, there were times where defenses we'd play like had us figured out and we didn't have a solution because we didn't get any elevation from the quarterback. And now when you look at them, when you look at the 49ers, you get that elevation from the quarterback position. But that took a year of kind of, sitting in sitting in a in a kind of not a holding pattern but a nurturing position understanding that was a weakness for the offense and then getting you where you needed to go and i also think that the way that they've selected talent for the roster and you know i think what it was debo samuel second round pick third round pick something like that yeah i think it was second yeah second round pick and everyone was a little bit weary of his size but speaking to what he does well and saying we want guys that are great after the catch george kittle Great after the catch. Brandon, are you great after the catch? Um, and then finding ways to maximize them with screens, with little kind of choice option routes and let those guys work for you, I think are also kind of, again, layups for the quarterback. And there's a reason that they're so explosive offensively. It's because they went out and found guys that can maximize after the catch ability. And I think that's, again, it's, it's a total offensive perspective. But again, it all comes back to this. We're insulating the quarterback with the talent we've acquired, with the game plan, and we're going to let him kind of marinate and develop for a year and let him kind of blossom into this player that we're seeing now. 
Right. And this has been my philosophy the whole time and my big criticism of what they've done with Sam or what they did with Sam now that he's been benched is like you can't the best way to, to develop a quarterback is to let him feel success and see more things without having to do it. Right. Like let's let's make sure that he only has to make 10 big time decisions every single game instead of 25 and the chances that he makes a mistake, even if they're the same, result in less mistakes. Let's say he makes, you know, a mistake on 20%, and maybe that's, a, you know, just an incompletion or a bad right. read. Maybe it's an interception or he takes a sack that he shouldn't, whatever. Well, if there's 10 dropbacks, that's two plays a game. Right. If there's 25, now I've got to do math. math uh, four, yeah. that's five. Uh, that's five, because uh, 25%, yeah, five, five, or 20%. The point is it's five um, <laughs> mistakes. And so that that's very, very, very significant in the course of a game. And so, and the chances are that the percentage is probably going to go up because you're going to wind up in bad down at distances. You're going to wind up in worse situations, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's a, it's a situation where I think they've done it the right way. The, you know, we, we've talked about insulating the quarterback. The, the word that I've started using as well, Logan, is incubating the quarterback. Yeah. Like, do you, do you find a way to make it so that he can develop along the way. And I think they've done that with Purdy as well as anyone. But I think the other side of that is they absolutely understand what he's good at and what he's capable right. of. And this is another thing that I don't know what the the situation is with Howell because I'm not in meetings with him. I don't have that, that level of access. But they understand, Kyle understands predominantly, that Purdy is incredibly bright. And so they are willing to put a lot on him in terms of verbiage, in terms of moving guys around, in terms of all of that stuff that EB was like, no, we're not doing that with Sam. And I don't know whether it was the right move or not, but it was like, you know, what what wound up happening here is you have the Aaron Rodgers, let's line up and play. And that is really hard. Whereas Purdy goes to the line every play with two plays, a chance to get into an optimal one, a tell on man versus zone, um, you know, and probably a favorable matchup that's easy to identify because he's got great skill players all over the place. And understanding that he can handle that neural load, that mental load, even if it's going to result in him turning around and handing the ball off more than any other quarterback in the league, um, is is something that Kyle realized early with Brock and, and has allowed him to come along in a great way. And I don't think that necessarily happened here and that discrepancy is is again part of the incubation process it's like what do we actually put on the guy um and and how does that uh how does that uh translate into risk versus what happened here where there was a lot more risk i think uh put on the quarterback yeah and it's interesting because when you look at it i think early in the season you say wow like sam was really successful and he's making all these big time throws i think he led the league in big time throws through like week 11 or something like that i don't remember the exact statistic but he's playing good football you know and i think the thing when you look at we mentioned like brock purdy's got this um this ability to uh what's what i'm looking for like he, he makes big time throws he makes big time plays gives us guys opportunities makes tight window throws but, you know, like when you look at the explosive play ratio, and this was something really interesting. I was talking to Sam Fortier about this last night, is the San Francisco 49ers are like number one in the NFL in explosive plays yeah. and explosive rate, play rate for sure. And then the commanders are like 10th. So they're not that far off. It's pretty close, right? But there's been a huge decrease in explosive plays, you know, over the last five or six weeks from Sam as Sam's not played well. 
And one of the biggest differences or the glaring differences between the first half of the season and what we've seen recently from Sam is his inability to find these explosive plays, right? And so you were talking about incubating a quarterback. And I think this is so relevant because obviously Sam showed an ability to do some really good high-level stuff, big-time stuff that's really exciting. And it keeps me excited about him going into next year. But one of the things about the San Francisco offense is that big play rate is more sustainable long-term because of the scheme there. And you hit on some of the things that they do really well. But like when you have, like, for example, you're watching the New York Giants game from earlier this year and they throw a screen, you know, it's a five-yard route. You know, not even, it's like a at the line of scrimmage route. I think the depth of targets like 0.5 yards. And Debo Samuel takes 65 yards for a touchdown. Like that is an opportunity through game plan, through scheme of me elevating him. We mentioned all the play action stuff that they do. That's elevating those guys. And again, when you see their open explosive plays, they're they're I don't want to say they're easy throws, but they're easier throws than what they're definitely. So I've got I've got his passing depth, Brock Purdy's up yeah. right now, PFF. Um he has a ninety-eight point seven PFF grade on deep throws this year. Yeah. He has he's twenty-eight of forty-five. He's averaging twenty yards an attempt. He's got ten touchdowns, one pick, uh, fifteen big time throws on Again, so 15 out of 45 big-time throws on deep stuff. Right. Like, that's you shouldn't be able to be successful at that rate. That tells right. you that these guys are running wide open. No, and I think that's right. And so, like, when you say, like, what's the difference? Like, it's just finding an environment where that quarterback can continually have success at a high level. You need him to make plays. I think this is something someone said to you. is like, you need to play the quarterback position. Yes. Yes. But can we offload some of these like super high leverage i got to identify the blitzer he's in my face i got to read this out i got to hit this ball perfectly in the right spot like i think about that new england game where he gets that completion of terry and there's a runner in his face he gets hit in the chest it's right over terry's shoulder there's a defender right here and they're just not has there haven't been the same kind of opportunities as you see in san francisco or detroit or some of these other places that understand how and i guess that's the other thing that's so interesting about san fran is they see the the highest number of eight-man boxes in the NFL. So what does that mean? It means you put a worse coverage player on the field, you're playing more kind of run-centric fronts, and you can create space more reticently in the back end. But And this is something you talked about earlier. Is like, where's that tipping point in EPA per play, for example, where we're running the ball, but we're also getting, we're maximizing what we're getting out of it. You know, we're maximizing our passes. And I feel like when you look at San Fran, like that's what they're doing. They basically run the ball enough, to dictate to the defense, because one of the things that's so brilliant about what's what's happening in the NFL right now is defenses are like, people want to throw the ball, let's play coverage. And basically the San Francisco 49ers are saying, we are not going to let you play coverage. And then when we get the box structure that we want and the coverage structure that we want, we're going to throw the ball. Like that's essentially, it's, it's like this arcane old school approach to, you know, football. It's like run the ball to throw. But that's essentially what they're doing. And I think the thing about it that makes a lot of sense to me is when you watch San Fran, the way they cultivate the angles in the run game, it allows them to be successful against these eight man linebackers. They have the highest success rate versus eight man run 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 structures in the NFL. So like they take time to make sure they're good at that because it sets up this explosive stuff down the field. And I think that's one of the things when you look at Brock Purdy and the system that they're in compared to Sam is Sam is out there, man. He's leveraged as far as he can be leveraged, I think, is from a quarterback standpoint. And you look at Brock Purdy, and it's like the complete opposite. And so if you right. can get a system in 
that supports Sam at a higher level. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of EB here because I think EB does some stuff that's super high level. Like even watching the Jets game, you're like, man, that's a brilliant concept. That's br- But it's is it the right thing for this player at this point in his career? And right. that's the question I think we've been asking ourselves the entire year. Yeah, I did. I did finally go back in my notes and actually look. Uh, week three was when I started going like, "Hey, I think yeah. I think we're running the ball too much. I know there's been some success passing the ball too much, is, right? uh, or passing the ball too much. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be a problem, and but, uh, uh, it, it sure has been. But I think that's the other thing. Just to kind of piggyback on that point is we are not saying run the ball to run the ball. We are saying right. efficiently run the ball to dictate a certain response to the defense and then get the result you want in the passing game. Yeah, I think put it another way, it's like take what the defense gives you. Yeah. Right. Like that is always a, a phrase that crosses sports. You know, we talk about it in basketball all the time. We talk about it in football. Like, take what the defense gives you. It's not modern even that. NFL defenses are giving you running fo- running the football easily. So just take it. It's not until even they that. stop, and then they'll give you something else. It's not even that. It's it's even like a little bit. It's like you're trying to in a certain in a certain sense you're trying to dictate to the defense. You're trying to say like we are. This is who we are offensively. We are going to do this. And I think the other thing we have to call attention to here is they can feel comfortable running the football the way they run it because their defense is so good. So they can have a three and out. I was going to get to that. And also the guy running it is Christian McCaffrey. And and everyone mocked that decision to bring him in. But when you look at what he does, like I was was watching all their explosive runs. I did that a couple days ago. First off, beautiful scheme. Almost every single play is beautiful scheme. Like the way they use the receivers to create angles for the offensive line. Like it's great, man. They do a great job of that. But Christian McCaffrey always makes the first guy miss. Like, I don't know what his, like, forced miss tackle rate is, but it's got to be one of the highest in the NFL. Like, every single time there's a free runner in the hole, he makes that dude miss. And it's just like, that is what that gives you. It is It keeps you on schedule. The, the right player in conjunction with the right scheme gives you this ability to basically say, like, this is our offensive identity, and we're going to dictate defensive structures to the defense and get them out of these really – you know, Matt Ryan was on the podcast and you always call attention to this, like these amorphous too high coverage structures, quarter six, whatever matches match types of coverages that we get <clears throat> are really hard to throw in because you don't know what you're looking at. And when you get Sam, I think over the last three or four weeks, you can tell he's a little bit confused about what the defense is presenting. When you run the ball like this and you have to play single high, all those kind of unusual coverage structures evaporate and they're getting that at 36%. That's the highest rate in the NFL. So that's unbelievable. And so think about the easy opportunities that are cultivated out of that. It's it's it makes it makes a lot of sense. It's just hard to kind of build your team to do that in today's NFL. It takes a lot of work too. So for sure, um, there's a great moment. And again, like the, the personnel point, there's a great moment on Hard Knocks this week where the Dolphins are driving to close out the game against the Cowboys when they're they're going down to kick the game winning field goal. And there's a third and two situation. And they wind up calling a screen to Tyreek. And McDaniel's like talking to it through it. He and they called a timeout before the play, talking to Tyreek. And they were you could you could tell the level of communication and the detail. They they like, hey, if you get this, like it's on. We're going for yeah. it. If it's not, it's this. And like Tua, they've got him mic'd. He goes up like before the the snap and he's like, it's man, we've got it. Like we're good. And then they they do the little short like walking motion with Tyreek yeah. to make sure he gets a free release and that the the DBs aren't set. They walk the DBs right into where they want them for the receivers to be able to block. Right. And then Tyreek Hill's got to get two yards. And it's yeah. a race. And who wins races? Tyreek Hill does. Right. And so, again, like, the, this philosophy of, like, right player, right time, right scheme, 
that is that's the epitome, the 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 pinnacle of offensive football in the NFL right now. And I think that's why both of us feel pretty strongly that like going that direction as the next head coach and you know who that person is, we'll see from your Ben Johnsons to your Bobby Slowicks to your Frank Smiths to you know, is there someone on this, you know, is it Brian Greasy on the San Francisco staff? Um, you know, like there's, there's definitely a lot of people around the NFL who think this way now. And, but I think what separates Kyle and what always has is his attention to detail to see the potential fail points and sure them up before you ever get there. Um, and then obviously get getting the vision of the right players, communicating that with the front office and all the stuff we've talked about over the, the last half hour. Um, and the last piece of that uh, as well is is the defense, right? Like, yeah. you know, understanding what they need defensively to make their systems work and, right. you know, understanding that, like, Fred Warner is the right guy for them and uh, how to use him to, to unlock this magical defense that they've had, you know, putting the right emphasis up front with Bosa and having, you know, the power of a star edge rusher and what that does. They've been tremendous scouting on the back end, whether it's Hufunga or, or some of the other corners yeah. that are probably a little bit underrated. Um, Hufunga at this point, like may, maybe some people don't still don't know him because he's a safety who plays for the Niners, but like, and he's obviously out right now. But like he's gotten the recognition that he deserves. I think he was an all pro last year, if not mm -hmm. certainly a pro bowler. So they, they've got guys at all three levels and a philosophy that is repeatable and is passed down from Sala to Ryan's, you know, now to Steve Wilkes that they've had the continuity and success on that side of the ball, which Kyle understands the importance of. And I think what's interesting too, by the way, on the offensive versus defensive head coach thing, um, I heard Grant Paulson talk about this the other, actually, no, he said this on, uh, on the, the Take a Man pregame show on Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, because I asked him like, hey, if Tomlin becomes available, if Sala becomes available, if you know one of these elite defensive guys were to become available as a head coach, I mean, and obviously like Dan Quinn is, is going to be out there as a defensive coordinator uh, who's going to get a head coaching job. Do you want them? And he's like, no. Yeah. And the reason why is because not only historically over the last, I think it's 20 years, have offensive head coaches had better offenses, they've actually had better defenses too. Yeah. Which, good luck explaining that. But it just, it just the way I think you think about football as an offensive mind is different than the way you think about it defensively. Um, and that apparently leads to being a better head coach. So if you have a defensive head coach who thinks about football like an offensive mind then sure bring them on well i think uh, that's, not, what, that's i mean I i'm an offensive one of, guy one of the benefits of having you know like a D'Amico ryan's like a guy that have again robert sala i think to a large to a large extent the same thing dan quinn you mentioned him they are thinking about defense in a way that is innovative and they understand like that it's an offensive driven league and i think there's some defensive coaches that have this very traditional perspective of like you got to run the ball possess we win the we win games with defense and that's totally shifted now defense is a supplemental aspect to offensive football and i think making sure that those coaches and i think those coaches i just mentioned understand this how yeah. important that offensive coordinator hire then becomes <clears throat> is so so critical and it's not just the offensive coordinator does your offensive line coach match that like really overseeing that process like i was very fortunate to talk to dan quinn he was like that was something that i wish i would have done a little bit better after Kyle left is really found that next guy. And because that that's the thing that drives the offense, you know what I'm saying? That, that, that makes it go. And then making sure those hires are the right thing. And I think that's something we talked about with Kyle and how he just seems to have a knack for a developing and b identifying. But I think if you, if you know that that's something that's so critical, lean into that, 
make that work for you. So I do, I do think there are defensive coaches that I would be very confident in hiring because of that perspective. But I do think to Grant's point, it is an offensive driven league playing against good offenses in practice every single day is so important. Like when you watch the 49ers defense, their ability to match concepts. They don't do a lot of overly complicated stuff defensively. They play quarters, little three, little two, kind of what you're seeing around the league right now. But they have an awesome pass rush. They've developed a system and an identity for that group and found rules that allow them to just tee off. And they match the crap out of concepts in the back end at a super high level because everyone knows what they're doing. And you got to play really good offensive football to beat that. And I think that's kind of kind of to your point. So. So there is uh, both the most and least comprehensive game preview we've done all year. A total, <laughs> a total uh, review of the San Francisco 49ers operation, uh, but also a little bit of, of you know, how it actually matches up with the commanders coming up on Sunday. Continuing on Take Command for a full three-hour preview of this game. Of course, we have the Take Command pregame show. You can come hang out with us live at Tap Sports Bar, MGM National Harbor, on Sunday. Uh, that starts at 10 a.m., the in-person portion at 11 when the doors open. But, of course, on your radio and on YouTube starting at 10. All right, Logan, uh, we just did big, comprehensive, big-picture San Francisco 49ers team-building exercises uh, and how that could apply to Washington and some things to keep in mind for the offseason. But... There's a game to play on <laughs> Sunday. Uh, Jacoby Brissett obviously going to get the start. We talked uh, about why we both think that is the right decision on our last podcast. But when you look at this 49ers defense and, and what EB and Jacoby are going to be trying to do to, to actually win the football game, um, how, do, how do they match up uh, against San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about, um, <clears throat> you know, last week with the Jets that there was a coverage. Uh, coverage kind of drove the rush, and I feel like it's the other way around here. They just got a lot of dudes who can rush the passer, specifically Nick Bosa. Obviously, Chase Young is there. Been a little quiet. Obviously, he's been productive, but I don't think he – I thought he's he'd He's the same there. guy he was here. Correct. Like he's, yeah. he, he can make some splash plays. You have to be aware of him. You have to do a good job. He will also overrush and let – uh, Lamar Jackson run for 40 yards. So, right. You know, and I think that's that's, that's, that's definitely is. something that they're dealing with, right? But I, I think the cool thing about that group is they've got kind of a stable of guys, and I feel like we're saying this every week, that are just good at rushing the passer. they got Javon Hargrave. They've got Randy Gregory. They've got Cleveland Farrell. Like, he's a guy that has been a little bit of a journeyman but is making plays and rushing the passer well. And they're a little banged up, which is crazy to think about. But they've been able to kind of in-season find these acquisitions and keep that rush cooking so that's something that i think is going to be a big deal this week is how do you kind of minimize the impact of that group specifically nick bosa like you know there's talking about like we've, we've played some good pass rushers and i think micah parsons obviously very talented but he's got to be maybe the second best guy we've seen and he can just impact the game and especially if the tackle is not as talented as like you know not not a top five tackle like nick bosa can absolutely wreck the game because not only does he play with excellent technique but he rushes the passer at an incredibly high level, and he just plays. He typically every... lines up defensive left, aka right. offensive right. Yes. So you got Andrew Wiley, who's questionable with an elbow injury, or Trent Scott out there trying to deal with him. Uh, I would say staying out of obvious passing situations seems very important. Yeah, I mean the question is how you do that. So, but I think that's something that you got to really keep an eye on. And then I think what you see in the back end, especially at the linebacker level, is just a ton of speed. Fred Warner, Greenlaw, those guys are excellent. They run to the football and they allow them to do so much from a light box perspective because they're so good at 
A, playing the run, and then B, reading their keys and getting into coverage windows. So it's like they, you know, we talked about this um, earlier this offseason about how linebacker play is being devalued, but in terms of impact on a defense or on a team, like having an elite middle linebacker is like the, it's like the number three thing you can have outside of a elite offensive tackle and elite wide receiver, just in terms of its impact on a roster. And I think they have that guy there in terms of Warner and what he does for them. So keep an eye on that in the back end. It's a bunch of guys that are good football players, a little underrated, but again, the thing that sticks out to me about that group is they match concepts really well. So in this game, I think Jacoby's ability to anticipate throws is going to be huge. Like you, I watched the Minnesota game uh, from earlier this year because that's the game. That's the team that th- has thrown for the most yards against them. And Kirk, that's the game Kirk got hurt. But in the first half or the first quarter he was playing, the level of anticipation he was throwing with was off the charts. Into small windows, layering throws. And that's what it's going to take if you're going to throw the ball a ton against this defense. So that's something that I think um, to keep an eye on. And Again, I'm glad that Sam's not playing in this game because that's stuff that he struggles with tremendously. Is it going to be easy for um, for Jacoby? No, it's nope. not going to be Hasn't easy. been easy for anybody this year. Right. It's not, it's going to be tough. But it, I, I think there is a path to offensive production with Jacoby, but it's going to be very, very challenging. And we talked about how good um, the Jets' defense was. This defense, yeah. to me, is better. It's just better coached. Things are a little bit tighter. They're more consistent. And that's saying a lot because the Jets' defense is is amazing. So I was going to ask, how similar are they structurally? They're pretty similar. You you have, obviously, Salah, the former D.C., uh, now two D.C.s ago. But, like, I'd imagine he took a lot of what he was doing in San Francisco to New York. And, and thus, they look pretty similar, even mm-hmm. if they their emphasis are a little bit different. Yeah, very similar. You know, they kind of are like that day one quarters install, but they still run a little bit of cover three. They still run two. I think they run less man, I would say. They still run man, but they still, they're like – the Jets ran a ton of man, and I think this team might have to look at the numbers, but it feels like when you watch them, they're a little bit less man-heavy. So, um, But again, it doesn't really matter because they're so good at matching in their zone structures and anticipating throws and making plays in the football. So it's going to be a tough matchup, especially if that pass rush is cooking um, and, and that pass rush can cook. So uh, tough matchup offensively for the commanders, but I think at least with Jacoby, there is a, a path, a vision, where you can get some of those higher leverage throws and maybe make some plays and get some offensive production. Yeah. Uh, staying out of a terrible game flow for once would be nice. Uh, you know, obviously we'll see how they can do that. Uh, and then defensively, you know, again, they're playing better. The bar was somewhere six feet under the floor, um, in terms of what better meant, uh, but they are playing better. Yeah. Uh, but this San Francisco offense generates space. It generates big plays. It, it does everything. Um, I mean, I'd say if you keep them under 30, that's a hell of a win <laughs> yeah. considering uh, the two sides going doing battle here. And and again, like the San, San Francisco 49ers don't, don't traditionally like run away with games because they're perfectly content with running the football and kind of keeping it, you know, deleveraging Brock Purdy. And I think this week, especially because of the offensive line injuries that they've suffered, I think you're going to see a much more conservative approach offensively. So, um, you know, they, they present a ton of issues. Like if they were healthy right now, I'd be like, I don't know what we're going to do. Because one of the things that this defense has struggled since Ron has been back is I think they've struggled a little bit stopping the run. And Mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot of running stuff. You're going to see – I mean, we just talked about how they're going to try and get you in. Like Ron, I think, has done a good job of saying we're going to get into these more conservative coverage structures, deleverage the corners, take some off those guys' plates, and that's worked great. But you're playing light boxes. And the San Fran 
I don't think you can do that. But when the second you get in those heavy run structures, they're going to hit play action shots. They're going to hit yeah, drifts. The, the second gonna... that Ron's like, hey, Mayo, get in there. Like yeah. George Kittle's going to be running up a seam and right. troubles. And, troubles and so that's the only thing that gives me some solace is that they are banged up on the offensive line. Trent's not going to play. They're really effective running to the left side of the offensive line when he's in because obviously he's like the best tackle in football. Um, but, you know, he's not going to play. I think they're going to sign a guy. They've signed a couple guys off other practice squads that are going to be here. So how effective is that group? Because while the scheme does take a lot of take a lot of pressure off the offensive line, like you talked about with Brock Purdy, they are really nuanced and very detailed with the rules. So how can you get those guys all on the same page uh, for this game on a short week? It's going to be very challenging for them. But th- because of all the stuff they do offensively, it's going to be a tough lift. Uh, for the defense. And then that's not even talking about the physical matchups. Like how do you match up with Kittle? Who, who's got Debo? How do you handle all the motions and shifts that they do? Ayuk is playing like he, everyone talks about Debo, but he's playing better than Debo right now. Christian McCaffrey is a matchup nightmare, like nightmare. He He's like a slot receiver that can run the football. So um, a lot of issues there that Ron's going to have to contend with this week. Yeah. It's um, there's a reason they're them. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the easiest way to put it. Um, that's the team I picked to win the Super Bowl. Still feel pretty good about it. Uh, obviously Baltimore's got something to say about that as well. Some other teams, but, um, they are excellent. They are well-built. They are well-schemed. They are, they are well everything, uh, which is why they are seen as one of the models around the NFL and why, uh, so many of their people have gone on to other places already. And we anticipate that continuing this off season, perhaps even some of them coming here uh that is our show for today we will talk more on sunday about this game and about some of the big picture things that we have discussed uh and we'll do that on the take command pregame show which you can listen to live on 106.7 the fan and the team 980 and watch on youtube uh in the meantime make sure you check me out on the radio uh the hoffman show four to seven daily on the team 980 that also streams live on youtube at the team 980 and highlights on my page at craig hoffman logan of course you can catch on command center and, and so much of the commander's stuff and follow on instagram at logan underscore paulson 82 for logan i'm craig we'll see you sunday at tap sports bar for team Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.